When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. This is cricket all over the world. Well, actually, not really at all because there's no cricket at all at the moment. But we're going to enjoy ourselves anyway. Jeff, it was the weekend here uh, where the England season was meant to commence. So we thought, what better time than to get Will McPherson back on the show and an old guest uh, who we had at the very start of the Final Word adventure, um, who, who is a, a diligent and excellent news hound with the Evening Standard. So um, he's going to come on and give us the skinny on, on where the England season is at it could be quite a, a quirky one for, for a number of reasons so Will's all over that um, of course uh, over the weekend here in lieu of actual cricket uh, we had replays from um, the Headingley Miracle with Ben Stokes mm-hmm. last year on, on Test Match Special and on Sky Cricket and, and likewise the, the, the World Cup final from Lords played out on, on Easter Sunday instead of the day one of the, of the season so people were getting their fill and it was kind of in a way quite gratifying seeing uh, how attached people were to those two days of cricket a reminder that you know, we might be on hiatus at the moment, but there's a lot of love for the game out there. Yeah, that, that was the most interesting part of it, was seeing how emotional people were getting listening to a replay of a match from a year ago on the radio and becoming quite overcome by it. That, that Ashes series is... It, it's a gift that gives to both sides. You know, Australia get to say, hey, we retained the Ashes, and England get to say, we had Headingley, and, and both of them get to take something out of it. So it, it was quite touching, really. And then not to look for this specifically, but I just happened to look at the analytics on the, the dashboard of the podcast as, as to what the total listener numbers were, and, and the most popular episode in the history of our show by a long way is the Ashes Daily episode from day four at Headingley, the one that we did that night, probably half an hour after Stokes had hit that winning boundary through cover and we were still pretty overwhelmed by it. Um, And so, yeah, put that up again and a a whole lot of new people have jumped on to listen to that, uh, to go back and listen to it, which has been nice as well. Yeah, it was good. I, I was one of those. I, I don't think I listened to it at the time. You know, you're, as, as is the nature mm. of running around as we were last summer, we record the podcast and you kind of don't get a chance to really think about it again. But listening back to it, I was kind of surprised at how on the money we were. Usually with analysis on sort of big moments in cricket, you have your first cut, which can often be a fairly long way from the mark once you've thought about it a bit more and spent some time writing an article mm. or reading some other writing and whatever else. But yeah, we, we were reasonably close to the pin. I think I described uh, one shot as coming off the wrong bowler or something like that. But beyond that, I think we kind of were able to capture the the, 
the size of the Stokes achievement. And you're right about both sets of fans having something to take from it. I, I, I kind of get where Australian fans are like, hey, why do you guys care so much about Headingley? We, we, we beat you next week anyway and, and retain the Ashes. But but equally, yeah, the, the Stokes achievement, when you compare it to anything in world cricket, just stands up. If anything, it gets better the, the more you watch it, like just thinking about knowing what's to come and the, the whole day. This is the difference. You, you seldom sit down and watch an entire day of Test cricket again. You might watch a full T20 again or or even a one-day international. But mm. with Test cricket, um, if you're seeing a replay of it or if you're seeing sort of something years down the track, it might be like a one-hour or a two-hour type compilation of the highlights. But the beauty of Saturday, and I, I sat down and watched most of it because – credit to Sky Cricket they, they ran it on YouTube so you're able to um, watch it for free and they had Stokes and Joe Root Chris Wokes Johnny Bairstow along with Nasser and, and Rob Key sort of narrating it director's cut style and um, right. yeah when you kind of are in for the long haul and watching a full day's cricket the second time around you 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 have a, a greater appreciation of just how fucked England were uh, but again also <laughs> but, but, but also uh, and that was in, in what became the final session of the match but also um, when they went to lunch that they were four down and, and Bairstow had played a blinder in the half an hour leading up to the break and there was genuine sort of belief there. I remember sitting out there in the Western Terrace taking photos uh, in the hour before lunch and it being kind of an exhilarating experience as a spectator. Mm. So uh, yeah, it was great to revisit all of that and uh, and yeah, it whet the appetite but I found it a bit hard as well because it was a glorious day on Saturday likewise for most of Sunday and you're thinking to yourself, there's nowhere I'd rather be than, than to be at the cricket right now. I went for a run at one stage mm. and you know that, that very familiar scent of cut grass in spring which really does symbolize the start of a, a new cricket season yeah. except there was there was nothing to be played yeah in a lot of ways in australia it feels more normal or more reasonable to be shutting down because we're coming towards winter you know the the days are shortening and the the nights are getting cooler and it is a winding down time of the year so it's a the contrasting positions we find ourselves in. We should send out a welcome to any of the people who are listening to the show for the first time or the second time, I guess, who might have found us via uh, reposting the Harsha Bugley interview that we put up over the weekend. So as we mentioned, we're going to be putting up a few older interviews as encores over the next few weekends or every second weekend to refresh those in people's memory and so a few people might have found the show from that and might be listening in um welcome aboard if you have done that was really great wasn't it how many people got in touch with us over the weekend from india saying that they, they'd listened to the final word for the first time for an interview that we did whatever it was 18 months ago so that, that was really lovely so if you are new to the final word there'll be some quirks along the way and some segments that might not make a lot of sense but um we we welcome you uh, it's great to have you on board and, and hopefully uh, your stay with us is a long one um jeff each week on on the show uh, since we've been in lockdown and isolation we've just been doing a sort of general check-in which i think is important to ask how people are going and I mean obviously you had your well documented health issues a few weeks ago I mean how, how's it all going for you and how's it all sort of feeling in Australia at the moment it, it's 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 strange here in Australia we are so much the country that that lucks out time and time again and then thinks that it's because of some inherent quality of Australia or Australians you know things are going well here the for the most part the the case rates are going down and all the rest of it and so of course we've got a whole chorus of fuckwits already coming out saying oh see we overreacted we shouldn't have um, done this and that you know while at the same time people are, are getting infected and dying in their droves overseas so expect a whole lot more of that coronavirus just another extension of the culture wars Um, but if if we can be lucky and stupid and get through it relatively unscathed i'd rather that than um, people being taught a lesson by things going disastrously wrong 
Yeah, that, that's a reasonable perspective. It, it, it's reminiscent for me of the, the global financial crisis in the response to it in, in 2008 and early 2009 and, you know, the criticism that, that flowed for years later around uh, around the, the amount of public money that was spent and, and the debt that the government had no control over, of course, because it was the, the revenue being uh, wiped off the books. But um, the criticism to this day of that response, yeah, because we didn't go into recession. If you don't go into recession, you don't experience the hundreds of thousands of job losses and the social dislocation and and the damage that does to, to sort of families across the nation. And we didn't have that. And as a consequence, it's hard to kind of mount the counter point. You know, you, you don't mm. get to sort of talk about the effects when they weren't realised. And I, I sort of feel as though there's some similarities at the moment in that the infection rate isn't as high, anywhere near as high as it is in other parts of the world. So the, the usual suspects who probably maintained a line that about um, about the, the financial crisis back then, it's the same cohort of people who are now um, asking for doors to be reopened and, and speaking in such a sort of callous way about um, the human toll. I mean, there was a columnist over here last week sort of building the, the argument that we should reopen the economy because if you're in your 70s, you, you've already had a good go of it. Well, mm. I mean, as, as crude as that is, uh, what about those who have underlying health conditions who, who aren't in their 70s? It's such a ridiculous argument to think that we would um, sort of cut vulnerable people off at the knees just to uh, to help with, with the short-term economic dislocation. I think the, the part of it that's perplexing me the most is this sort of fantasy that your economy is going to magically go back to normal as soon as things reopen. That's not going to be the case. You know, people's behaviour has been changed. It'll continue to be changed. Um, you know, some people will would go back closer to normal, but certainly not everybody. So the idea that you can just switch it back on, which is the phrase I keep seeing, is is um, nonsensical. Yeah, the, the Trump line overnight, which is kind of like, well, I can reopen the economy at the, you know, the stroke of a pen and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's important to sort of wade through the bullshit. Helpfully at my end, I've got this two-month-old baby, Winnie. It's two months today, which is kind of cool, where we've just changed her clothes from the first-size baby's clothes to the second-size baby clothes, which is a, a bit of a a bit of a milestone. She's smiling a lot more now, which is kind of organic, and she's off to her first... Um, vaccine injections shortly as well so you know it, it, it it's good to have that perspective that we're that we're lucky here even though we've been in lockdown for, for a month now and it, while the weekend was tough with how beautiful it was outside um, there's a i guess a much bigger picture to be looking at as well uh, we, we, we talk a little bit about um when we discuss um county cricket with will mcpherson later in the show and um, we've already recorded that um we, we reflect on jonathan Liu's column in the guardian today um i found that quite um quite on on the mark for me as well the idea that Thousands of people attend county cricket, but millions of people feel associated with county cricket and the game, um, you know, day to day, week to week. And yeah, it's sort of a, a big target at times when, when talking about sort of a bloated structure in, in England. But uh, for those that the rhythms of life reflect the seasons, and we, we talked a bit about this on the, on the final word last week, um, having the start of a new season and, and not having the game there, it did, it did pack a bit of a punch this week so hopefully um you know th there are some green shoots though as far as the the way the planning is taking place and we'll go into that with will and it might mean that we have yeah quite a, a bizarre but entertaining uh, cricket season that, that might be a, a possible uh, in, in the in the latter summer months we heard from nathan lyon as well on a, a zoom interview that the australian players are doing on a drip feed at the moment um talking about the bangladesh tour being postponed and um cancelling his deal at Hampshire in 
agreement with the club basically because he there's no point going over there when he can't go and play interesting that he would choose to go to Hampshire the the stamping grounds stomping grounds definitely stomping grounds aren't they of um, SK Warren who of course did such good work um, down there that they built a hotel and named it after him <laughs> yeah the uh, well um, it's become a bit of a, an Australian training base of sorts as well they, they, they spend a lot of time down there when in the UK so Lyon would be familiar with, with those surrounds and yeah, disappointing for him on a personal basis because he wants to start being a county cricketer. He said that a couple of times. He did a short stint at Worcester maybe three summers ago, which wasn't overly successful, but it wasn't overly long either. He was there, I think, replacing Ashwin, who, who was uh, on international duty. So this was Lyon's chance to play effectively a full season in, in the championship or near enough to it, with the exception of, of a couple of weeks when he would have been in Bangladesh. So, um, But yeah, he's uh, he's still on the video game, though. I, I note that uh, we've been um, doing this uh, corona quarantine cup thing on the cricketer website, and uh, Nathan Lyon's been turning out for Hampshire in that. So at least he's getting an opportunity <laughs> to play for his, his new club there. From Lyon's perspective, Jeff, I think it's interesting that we were working on the basis that he would take his 400th test wicket in Dhaka or Chittagong um, with he's really sitting on 390 and you think that the, the first choice spinner would take at least 10 wickets across two test matches there. But but now that it, it's more likely that he'll, he'll take his 400th test wicket in Australia, maybe behind closed doors. He's on 96 test matches at the moment, which means that I suppose there's a, there's a strong chance that his 100th test could be at the SCG at his home ground but again it could be with, with no fans there so um, Lyon's own personal story reflects the, the, the sort of strange place we're at at the moment Yeah he's um, he's he's a reflection of the times in a, a lot of ways I suppose in in Australian cricket he was the the Hail Mary after the the bare spin years after Warren retired and um, it'd be it'd be unfortunate for him if he was to go past that milestone in an empty stadium I suppose he was saying it might not be such a bad thing reflecting on the the possibility of India coming over to tour because he was saying it'd be difficult for Virat Kohli to rev up a whole bunch of empty chairs, yeah. you know, when when a wicket falls <laughs> or or it gets to a hundred. Yeah, it was it was a good line that. And if, and if you are listening, he wasn't um, being critical of Kohli. It was very much said tongue in cheek, and it, it was said with love and respect to Kohli. And as it was the the, the reflection on Chitesra Pajara saying that. Um, that he won't be flying under the radar this time, that they, they obviously have a lot of respect for Pajara after the mountain of runs he scored here a, a couple of summers ago. So, yeah, Lyon, I mean, yeah, the, the elder statesman of this team now, isn't he? 390 test wickets. He'll be 33 in November, Jeff. So mm-hmm. we, we often hear about finger spinners uh, having some of their best years uh, towards their mid to late 30s. You look at the, the retirement. Murali was 38. Harath was 40. Harbhajan never really retired. He's not, not playing for a few years, but he's still playing in the IPL. I think he's 39 years of age now. Graham Swan played until he was... I'd love to see him just wander back. Arbajan just, just yeah. walks back into the Indian team. It's yeah. like, I never retired. Here yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, he did start back in 1998, so it was a, a long career starting as a teenager. And then um, Graham Swan, I think, went until he's 35 or 36. So there's no reason to suggest that, that Lyon at 33 wouldn't be sort of looking at this as a chance to sort of reset and, and have another, I don't know, a couple of hundred test wickets in him. I mean, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there's any reason for him to be winding down at this stage of his career. Like most players around mm. the 100 test mark, they're, they're, they're starting to, to get to the back end. But yeah, with with uh, um, modern technology and what do they call it? Strength and conditioning and all the rest of it. And of course, a, a master of his craft. I think it's realistic that, that he could go you know, well into the five and six hundreds. Yeah, I mean, he also wouldn't have come into the Australian team until age of 24 or so, was he? 24? 
four or five. Oh, I don't think he was um, quite that old. But he might have, but yeah, still, you're right though. He wasn't on the sort of on that um, on the on treadmill. The, yeah, on that treadmill in those years. Yeah, and you look at someone like Murley who would have bowled you know, 50,000 overs by the point that he turned 38. Lyon could get to 38 feeling a fair bit fresher than Murali might have done and and with things yet to achieve. So he could go well up the list in... I'd say he could. Maybe he could do a Herath. Maybe he could play to 40. Why not? Just just keep turning out. He's got a simple, repeatable action. He hasn't had a lot of injury problems. Um, he enjoys what he's doing and, and he's blossomed over the years. Well, I remember on one of the very first episodes of the final week, Jeff, maybe not. Uh, yeah, you know, it would have been the first because we did the season in England in 2015 and we came back home in 15, 16 and, and did a second season. And I reckon there we devoted about half an hour one day to, to, to trying to forecast how many wickets Nathan Lyon would finish with. And at that point he had, you know, maybe near enough to 200, maybe not even 200. And, and we said that he'd overtake Shane mm. Warne and we copped a bit of grief on Twitter about it. But <laughs> if he were to play till he's 40 or even 38, maybe that, that 708 could be... Could be, could be achievable. It, yeah, it, he's it, more than halfway. More than halfway there. More than living mm-hmm. on a prayer. I also note yeah. that he was um, he was asked a little bit about the the test documentary. We of course had Adrian Brown uh, on the show a few weeks ago. If you want to learn more about the, that that uh, excellent production, but Lyon became quite an important character in that towards the end of the show for, for two reasons. One, the 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 Travis Head. Uh, baggy green presentation where he was like in tears presenting the baggy green and I don't think we knew that at the time Jeff over there my, my recollection in Dakar uh, not Dakar rather where were we Dubai was, was I don't think we knew that story at the time so that was quite revealing how close Nathan is with, with Travis and, and the way he responded to giving him his baggy green and the other bit of course being uh, the leads we already talked about the leads Headingley um, moment last year line of course integral to to all of that um, so the vanquished man laying on the turf at the end and all the rest of it but um, he says that he's, he's watched it quite a few times uh, the test documentary that particular bit in order not just to get over it but to kind of improve you always hear this line from Nathan Lyon he always wants to improve and he, and he finds mm. that watching this footage is, is helping him improve and better prepare himself for next time when something tense might occur. Yeah, I, I think we're overly critical in sport of the fact that mistakes just happen sometimes. Yeah. You know, sometimes you sometimes you drop a catch, sometimes you fumble a take, whatever it is, not because you haven't trained enough, you haven't practised enough or whatever it is, but just because that time it happens to go that way. You know, and, and there's we could be more fatalistic than we are, I suppose, about sport. Nathan Lyon's not the only one who's been watching the documentary back. Ali Mitchell has been doing the same. Uh, interviewed Pat Cummins in The Guardian about some of the footage that, that popped up of Pat in the doco. This was really good. Uh, excellent interview uh, in the paper yesterday uh, where, where Pat, yeah, it's kind of an interesting angle really, taking one of the players who, yeah, he bowled the ball to Stokes that, that ends up uh, um, deciding the match, but uh, more looking at the following day. So that scene in the boardroom where Lyon's watching this back through his fingers and it's just very tough to watch uh, from when you're trying to sort of put yourself in in his shoes. But yeah, Cummins as well and, and saying how difficult it was for them, but crediting Langer with it being the best thing he ever did. So evidently a WhatsApp went out to the team um, on the night uh, when they lost at Leeds saying, I-, I want you all tomorrow morning in this room in the hotel to, to watch it back. And the players were very critical at the time, saying, this is ridiculous, why would you have us do this, just give us a day off. And, mm. and after that moment where they were able to sort of put it behind them, watching it back again, the partnership between Stokes and Leach, Cummins credits that with how they were able to prepare for the 
for the Manchester Test match, which of course they, they went on to win uh, a week and a half later and, and were able to be in the right mindset for that. So yeah, interesting sort of behind the curtain stuff there. And as much attention as was being uh, received around that interview yesterday on the internet, there was far more, Jeff, around the photo shoot that, that Pat Cummins did uh, with our friend and colleague from Getty Images, Ryan Pierce, uh, there in the Southern Highlands at his property there with his fiance, with his sort of ripped jeans and his, uh, and his, um, and his uh, oh, I don't know how you describe the shirt. It's sort of a, a, a check shirt, blue and white, all very um, rustic, if you like, and uh, looking a treat which uh, was generating a lot of attention. Well, it's a request um, line that Ryan Pierce has set up, and it was a crest, request I sent in was Pat Cummins with about thirteen cows, um, and then <laughs> we've got it. You know, he's strolling through the, uh, the the fields of grass of rural New South Wales with the bovine stock behind him. You know, the the Pied Piper of the cow world, and we've always said. Pat Cummins can do whatever he wants, whatever he turns his hand to, it'll it'll come off. So it's working so far. Well, my response to uh, our friend uh, Ellie Oldroyd and patron of the show was that um, if you want to see a good photo of Pat Cummins, look at the one that we took when we interviewed him last year, wearing the long sleeved Australian jumper in the in the uh, in the dressing rooms there at Derbyshire. The spray on cable net. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so uh, that's that's pretty much all that's going on in, in Camp Australia. But um, uh, Jeff, as always, we we like to keep a. a, a, a uh, a broader lens across the cricketing world and there's been a bit going on in India as well. Yeah, this is a strange one in India during the week where a, so a couple of... We mentioned Harbhajan Singh earlier. He's involved and Yuvraj Singh as well. They've both been involved in promoting this charity that Shade Afridi has put together, you know, trying to raise funds for uh, impoverished and underprivileged people and so they've put links out on their social media and so on and, and there's a... There is a unpleasant slice of the internet in terms of rabid right-wing nationalist Indian Twitter, and you know most countries have their slice of that. But I suppose the Australian slice is a smaller slice, just by virtue of overall population. So they've been absolutely smashed for this, for being unpatriotic, for being traitors um, to their country, and all the rest of it, purely because Shade of Freedies. Pakistani and they're Indian and how dare they support a Pakistani charity so Yuvraj has had to come out and release a statement during the week to say well you know if you think that I'm not a patriotic Indian then you obviously haven't been watching but that doesn't mean that I can't care about humans and humanity and why can't we reach across borders to do these sort of things um Irfan Patan's been getting a hard time on the internet as well from some of these uh, trolls for an even more innocuous comment uh, Meanwhile, Irfan Patan and Yusuf Patan, his brother, have been getting together tons of rice and potatoes to donate to the poor in Baroda. A lot of people having a tough time in India at the moment. So, Sebas, super performer for the week, for my money. Yuvraj Singh, Irfan Patan, uh, they've been out there doing good work in the face of some fairly ridiculous opposition uh, and have been doing their best to keep some dignity and look after people. So, uh, I'd like to nominate them. Yeah, that's great stuff. I mean, yeah, you sort of feel for cricketers who all they do on is use their profile and such a considerable profile in the case of someone like Yuvraj Singh, World Cup champion uh, and all the rest and, you know, trying to help people and, and yet still copying or still finding himself in, in the middle of the in the middle of this um, back and forth on, on social media. It must be really tough. And, yeah, you can kind of understand why, why some players choose to keep their heads down uh, in, in that environment. But well played to Yuvraj Singh and, 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 and others that you mentioned there who've... Uh, who've been out there doing the right thing through this tough time. 
That's the CBUS segment, of course, so I have to awkwardly segue to tell you that CBUS makes sure that all profits go to members, not to shareholders, and that you can find their information at cbussuper.com.au. I should also uh, say, PDS. sorry, as, as I cut you off at the end there, of course, get a PDS and, and past performance <laughs> is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Um, for those that have asked, we've had a couple of messages on the, on the Patreon page about this, actually. We, we, we mentioned a few weeks ago when when uh, CBUS Super uh, rejoined the final word, so maybe four or five weeks ago, that we were going to reboot the T-shirts. Well, we are going to do that, uh, and uh, just marking a place that there are moves afoot to, um, at long last, roll out the final word, CBUS Super T-shirts. So I'll have more to say on that in future weeks. Nice one. We've got to extract them from the locked down office somehow. That's the, probably the first problem. Yeah, one, one um, step at a time. <laughs> one step at a time. But, but again, just, just, just putting it out there that, that we are finding a way through this. We're going to keep people hanging on for like seven years on the promise of a T-shirt <laughs> one day, eventually. By the time they get it, they'll open the parcel and just 80 moths will fly out and there'll be like a label and nothing left. And Jeff, what time is it? It's time for Nerd Pledge. The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they send us an amount of dollars and cents that corresponds to a cricketing number and we have to work out what that number is. Ah, it's a game we love. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a game we will play anytime, anywhere. You can yell numbers at us in the street and we will make something up about them. Last week we, we got some really good feedback from uh, two of our patrons. One of those was Will McLean. So he's 670 or six. Point seven zero. We assumed it was Richie Benno for what he did at Manchester in 1961, but he reported that it was Which actually... Which was taking six for 70 and not scoring 670. No, correct. But he, he said it was the six for 70 that Chris Wokes took at Lords, uh, being a good brummy lad. Will McLean, so thanks for your message. Uh, I think we did mention that Wokes took six against Pakistan in, you did. in 2016, yeah. so at least we'll... You've we'll, mentioned that to me a lot. There are many, many times you've mentioned Chris Wokes in that match to me. We were pretty close to the pin. I just note, though, that um, when we were putting out the episode last week, it was um, five years since Richie Benno passed away in April uh, 2015. And um, I I thought this might be a a nice opportunity just to um, play a a lovely response uh, in an interview that I did the other day with the great Ian Smith, a New Zealand commentator. You'll be able to hear that in greater detail in the first episode of uh, Calling the Shots. That'll be on the final word feed on Friday. So Ian Smith and Ali Mitchell are on the first episode of the new podcast. So as we mentioned before, there there were the, the encore editions will be every second weekend and the other alternate week uh, will be uh, the back end of the week will be an episode dropping of Calling the Shots, so a documentary podcast uh, of the history of cricket commentary with Daniel Norcross and myself. But yes, Ian Smith, um, uh, when we told him that it was uh, five years since Richie Benno passed away, told us a lovely anecdote, and I just thought I'd drop it in here. I'll tell you how the first time I ever got to call a big moment. Um, New Zealand were about to beat Lord uh, England at Lords for the first time ever, uh, and I was working for Channel Four with Richie Benno, who. I don't idolise too many people, but I can clearly say I, I absolutely idolised Richie Benno. Hung on every word, used to sit in the back of the commentary box when Benno was on and basically listen or watch how I thought the master did the job. And I was like a very, very young apprentice when I started working with him. And on this particular afternoon, New Zealand had won at Lords, uh, was about to win at Lords, and it was a huge amount of history for a New Zealand cricket team. So it was obviously going to be a, a, a critical moment of commentary. And Ben, I set it up uh, along the lines of something like New Zealand are about to create history. It's going to be a wonderful moment for them, four to win. 
And he put the microphone down and got up and walked away. And there was only two of us there. And the producer said to him, Rich, where are you going? Where are you going, Rich? It's a big moment. He said, yeah, it is. It's his moment too. Let him have it. So, um, you know, that that's a story. And all of a sudden, it's, I suppose you'd say, well, you've been thrown in the deep end, but you've both... You've been thrown one of the biggest compliments of all time, that your voice is going to call that moment, and a great man like Richie Benno has deemed it the right time for you to do it. And I think I grew up 10 years in commentary in 20 seconds there, that the great man who I idolised so much had given me that opportunity to be part of my cricket teams and my, my country's cricketing history. That... I reflect on that still today, on on how lucky I was and how classy he was. So more of that on Calling the Shots with Daniel Norcross and myself, which will be in the feed on Friday. Jeff, we also heard back from Abby Singh, who was uh, uh, there with 224, and he was confirming that we were on the money with, with MS Dhoni at Chennai in 2013. But he says now he will up his um, pledge because he wants to make it harder for us. So we, we welcome that as well. Bring it on. If you want to get more niche with the numbers, uh, you can. If you want to give us a an oblique hint in a message once you've signed up, you can do that too. Uh, a quick shout out to our non-nerds, our straight down the line pledges. Some people just come in with uh, an ordinary number, although it was pointed out to me by uh, subscriber RJ that when he pledged a flat $2, it could have been a tribute to Steve Waugh's uh, even 200 <laughs> scored in the West Indies. Um, it, it was not, but you know that, that was the suggestion. So thank you to Dan Tutel, uh, to Jared Barnes, who signed up, and I got very excited when I saw this. Robin James, spelt R-O-B-Y-N. Now, I'm pretty sure this is actually Robin Carlson, R-O-B-Y-N, <laughs> as in the Swedish uh, pop singer, who popped up online a couple of days ago putting up a clip shot from on stage from her show at Alexandra Palace a year ago. Which we were um, at. Which we were at in yeah. the audience of. Um, and and what a what a... Wonderful memory that was. To, that was a year ago. We were, we were, we were that was a year ago. Robin, blimey. Great night. Where, where she uh, gave it over to the audience to sing, I'm in the corner watching you kiss her. Oh, another friend of another friend of the show. Uh, well, Johnny 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 Pickering, who uh, who is uh, who has um, kindly been the doorman at two of our live shows in Melbourne uh, for the final word. He's currently been cutting together uh, a video of dancing on my own, meshed in mm. with Fabio from Full Frontal. Uh, so you'll have to stick around for that. We'll put it on Twitter <laughs> when he's finished it. But I've seen the early cut, and it's, it's very funny. The old Fabio dance from uh, the the the, uh, the sketch show back in the in the early nineties. Anyway, moving on, Jeff. We've got some new numbers. We do have some new numbers, so thanks to Dan Tutel, Robin James and Jared Barnes for jumping on. The new numbers come in this week from... Now, here we've got a three-way number uh, because Stephen Donoghue and Sam Nemza and Thomas have all come through with 221. Normally, I don't duplicate, sort of get people together on a number because the number could mean different things for different people. But I was aware that we did discuss 221 a couple of weeks ago that had been sent in by Andrew Gilbertson, who we somehow turned into a Brazilian footballer called Gilbert Sao. <laughs> um, we discussed 221 because we talked about Ricky Ponting's final yep. uh, century, the one that he made at Adel the Adelaide Oval. We talked about... I talked at length about Brian Lara making 221 in his miraculous Sri Lanka tour in mm -hmm. 2001. I think there's the 221 we've discussed in terms of Rob Key made 221. Yep. was his only Test 100. And there's one we haven't talked about so much, but it's in 1979, one of the 
more miraculous innings really in, in Test history where India needed 438 mm. to win a test against England in the last innings and to draw the series and they ended up nine runs short with two wickets in hand. Sunil Gavaskar made 221 but got out near the end and the wickets started to tumble. So it could be any of those things but I was thinking I, I want to do something else with this number given we've talked about it a bit. And so I, I've, I'm going to look at this later in the show. We've got a stat man section at the end of the show. <laughs> He's a stat man. It's, it's going to, I'm going to play it, don't worry. And what I wanted to look at was the Rob Key thing spun me off onto players whose only test century was a double hundred. So uh, Stephen Donahue, Sam Nemser and Thomas, we will be looking at that in relation to 221 later in the show. I like this. Patron part two later in the stat, man. Nice little segue there, Jeff. Nice <laughs> little link. Uh, we've got uh, Harry Chapman with 207. I mean, I know, uh, Jeff, we, we talked a bit about 207 in the context of Nasser Hussain um, a couple of weeks ago. He's finest we talked a lot about 207. Innings. Uh, so it, it could be uh, Harry Chapman's tribute to Nas. And if you haven't listened to the Nasser Hussain episode yet, um, listen a couple back. It's a, a long conversation. It's been mm. very kindly received. People are still sending it around on Twitter and all the rest of it. We're and we're really grateful for that. Um, well, Neil, this should prove that I don't fiddle with the order of the nerd pledges because if I had, I would surely have put the 207 in the Nasser Hussain <laughs> episode, but I didn't because I'm true to chronological ordering and, and we do them as they come in. No, fair enough. Uh, there's also Neil Wagner's uh, 200 and... Well, he's on 206 test wickets. I had a look and thought, you know, if not for the... Um, the current pause in Test cricket, he probably would have passed 207. So just a, a nod to Neil Wagner, who um, is very much at the peak of his cricketing prowess at the moment. But um, the one I wanted to touch on and talk about a little bit was was the great Barry Richards, who made 207. Um, I thought you were going to say the great Barrier Reef. <laughs> great Barrier Reef. <laughs> the great Barrier Richards. What I wanted to talk about is the great Barrier Reef and the coral bleaching. <laughs> And ocean temperatures. <laughs> I did write a story for The Guardian about the Great Barrier Reef a few years ago, and uh, hmm. uh, but uh, I, I might revisit that, but no. Uh, Barry Richards um, made 207, but it, it's one of, those, uh, one of those sort of incredible sort of matches for um, the, the partnerships that were collated. So Richards opened the batting with Gordon Greenwich, and they put on 369 for the first wicket, triple nice. Uh, and then uh, he and Viv uh, took it to 461 for the... For the second wicket. So at one stage, the World Eleven were one for 461 against Ouch. Lily, Walker and Gilmore. I mean, pretty useful um, seam bowling attack. It was a, a super test. So it, was a, it wasn't played at the Wacker. It must have been played at Gloucester Park, I reckon. I think that's where they played the, the, the super tests uh, in, in that initial uh, season or uh, certainly the, 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 the Red Bull stuff that they were playing at the time uh, and all the rest of it. So they went on to beat that Australian team by an innings. And I know in the past, having read about this, that the Richards innings is seen as the best played by a visiting batsman in the World Series era, uh, the World Series cricket era when they played for a couple of years. So, mm. so 625 they made and, and Richards made 207 of those. So maybe Harry Chapman's a, a fan of, of that era of cricket. I've just spent two weeks of my life um, digging around about something that happened in 1977 at the MCG. You can read about that in The Guardian uh, later in the week as well. So I'm, I'm right in the middle of uh, that at the moment. So uh, I'm glad that the, the innings from that era is something we can talk about today. And our last number for today, Toby Miles, who came through with 388. 388, Adam. So Obviously, no one's ever made 388. We know that. No. Well, Ted Dexter was the 388th. Um, English Test cricketer and Andrew Simons was capped number 388 for Australia. So, you know, two fairly considerable characters. Dexter, of course, 
captain of England. Many people um, said one, or many people have, have declared him as one of the most important sort of post-war England cricketers. And, and mm-hmm. Andrew Simons, of course, a, a World Cup champion on at least a couple of occasions. He didn't play in three, did he? No, he would have played in two in 2003 and, and 2007. So um, I think Andrew Simons meets uh, well enough the, the definition of cult hero, even though he's very popular, to make me very confident that 388 is going to be a, a Simon's um, reach, you know, a, a Simon's pledge. That's what I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah, that, that certainly that certainly makes sense that, that it would be Andrew Simon. So we'll, we'll go with that. I have to say, though, Jeff, a, a confession here. I, I made a blue when going through this earlier and um, and took down the number wrong and had a 368. So I had this whole thing about Jimmy Anderson. I might tell you about it anyway. So in short, Jimmy Anderson has 368 test wickets at home. So 368 <laughs> of his test weeks in England at an average of 24. But that I wasn't so much interested in as the what he's done at home since the age of 32. Looking at Nathan Lyon's age earlier, and I just had a bit of a poke around. And since he turned 32, he's played 28 test matches in England, plus four overs at Edgebaston, but we won't count that. So the 28 completed test matches he's played in England since his 32nd birthday, he's taken 134 wickets at 17.6. I mean, you know, talk about sort of getting better with age. Uh, he's, he's, his average has uh, dropped at home from, I think it was 27.5 at that age to 23.8 now. So I'm sure that you know, when his career's over, there'll be a lot of work will go into how he managed to like improve year on year when, when most fast bowlers are in, are in serious decline. That would have been a great... Great stat had the number been 368. <laughs> it was 388. Thank Sorry, you, Toby. Toby Miles. If we've uh, got your number right with our guest, you can let us know. Drop us a message. I also wanted to tell you, Adam, in this segment about the, the David Varley saga. Mm. Now, a few weeks ago, we had David Varley sign up to support the show on Patreon. And I discussed it with you on the show and I said, I'm pretty sure I know David Varley because, you know, uh, David Varley's a, a mate of mine going a way back. I haven't seen him in a long time because he's been off living in Hong Kong and I, I speculated that he was probably just about ready to qualify f- to play for Hong Kong now. He's an enthusiastic cricketer. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a few days later, maybe a week later, I got a message on Facebook or something from David Varley saying, oh, thanks for my mention on the show. I am still in Hong Kong and he sent me some clips of him bowling some leg breaks in a match where he'd picked up a couple of wickets. Uh, and, you know, it's just proof that he was still playing cricket. I said, great. I, I clipped them together into, um, into one video and I put them up on our patron page and I said, here's, here's David Varley, our patron supporter, bowling, bowling his leg breaks, getting some wickets. And I dropped into the DM function on Patreon and I sent a message to David Varley and I said, hey, you're, uh, you know, you're bowling, your clips are up on the page if you want to have a look. And David Varley, who has signed up to our Patreon, wrote back and said, that's great, but I'm not that David Varley. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so David Varley, who I know, has just been happily taking credit for the other David Varley's Patreon support through the last few weeks uh, and, and using it to promote his own bowling and has, has done so completely shamelessly in, in a way that is highly amusing. And this, there has been an actual identity theft that has taken place out there. David Varley's may not be what they seem. So that is a, a warning to all of you. <laughs> if Beautiful. You're out there listening in.
Oh, I've been watching Mad Men religiously each evening with, with Rach as we've gone through, which kind of fundamentally revolves around some identity theft from the main character. So I, I enjoy there's a, a bit of a a bit of that too on our Patreon page. That's that's excellent. If, and I, if, if the other David Valley, who I know, wants to jump on Patreon and send us a couple of bucks, you can go to patreon.com <laughs> slash the final word. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs> send us videos of you playing cricket if you would like. We're certainly happy to receive them. And again, a, thank, a big thank you to everyone everyone that signed up and, and been mentioned today. So Dan Tutel, Robin, James, Jared, Barnes, Stephen and Donahue, Sam, Nemza, Thomas, Harry, Chapman and Toby Miles. It's hugely appreciated support um, since we've gone into lockdown and isolation, as we've mentioned a few times. The, 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 the patron nerd pledges have become even more important to how we're sustaining our lives as cricket journalists. So uh, thank you for making that possible through this tough time and uh, and thank you to those who listened in and f- provided feedback to week to week including from our encore reps so our encore reps um, with the old interviews that will roll out and um, we'll also have some nerd pledge inside of them every other week so uh, keep an eye on that and, and Jeff I, I think that's uh, about time for us to take a bit of a breather indeed let's uh, do that and then we'll move on to Will McPherson Jeff uh, before we go to Will uh, a word our friends at Wisden Cricket Monthly, the cricket magazine, which you receive, as I went into some depth about last time around, once How often? Per, per calendar month, 12 times a year. <laughs> if you subscribe for two years, how many times would you get it then? Well, 24 times. There was quite a bit of back and forth on social media when we, yep. uh, when we went through this last time. And I would just simply note one, one, one bit of commentary where um, how mm. many times does, does the Woman's Weekly come out each year, Jeff, the magazine? Well, you would you would guess fifty two, wouldn't you? You would, wouldn't you? You would, yeah. wouldn't you? N- not the case. Comes out twelve times a year. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I found out through googling this after the fact. When I was I was quite confused by this, I googled it after, mm. and they they made an editorial decision many many moons ago that it wouldn't be a good idea to call it the Women's Monthly. <laughs> You couldn't well, make it, it up. You couldn't make it, it up. Could be, it, it could be used, you know, to, to solve that problem if you needed to tear a few sheets out of it. Um, but prob- probably better in the days when the pages were more ob- absorbent than the sort of glossy stuff you've got with Mila Kunis's picture on it or whatever you've got We're these days. already well down the wormhole here, aren't we, Jeff? Wisdom <laughs> Cricket... I nearly call it Women's Cricket Monthly. Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Best <laughs> cricket mag in the world. <laughs> women's Cricket Weekly, which comes out monthly. <laughs> Well, there's plenty of women's cricket in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, I assure you of that. In, uh, in every edition, uh, there's a dedicated section, lots of interviews. But um, uh, what I need to say off the top and what I want to say off the top is the best cricket mag in the world. And through the deal we've got with The Final Word, you can receive six editions for six quid. So about 10 Australian dollars. In fact, that might be more like 12 Australian dollars since coronavirus, but still, it's a steal. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, I'll tell you when, what. When you, when you consider the, the, the amount that's in each magazine, well over 100 pages of cricketing good and of course, given we're in this period of uh, uh, pause, it means that uh, there, there is far more creative writing. I know this month they're still working on how they're going to put it together, but um, you can rest assured that, that some of the best cricket writers in the world will be there um, writing sort of longer essays and longer reflections on the game uh, while we wait for, for it to return. And the way you access this ripper of a deal is by simply going to bit.ly, so bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, 
forward slash WCM final. That link will be in the show notes if you just want to click onto it, but bit.ly forward slash WCM final. And if you've not tried uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly before and you're sort of uh, debating whether you want to make the plunge with your six quid, there's a, a new sort of mini version of the magazine which is free on the website. It's it's a sample edition, so you can look at that at WCMDigi.com. So that's available to you as well. So if you want to get the offer, six quid, six editions, $12.00. In Australian terms, bit.ly forward slash WCM final. If you just want to have a quick look and see what it's like and check out whether it's for you, WCMDigi.com. We'll put both of those links into the show notes. One of the issues with a digital edition is that you cannot use it to mop up any spills, but it does come to your house much more quickly and you don't have to go out and catch a disease while you're in the outside world. Issue 31 uh, will have a multi-pronged analysis of the state standing meaning and importance of test cricket in 2020. And, And more excitingly, given what we were talking about last week, there's an interview with Dean Jones reflecting on his life in the game, but presumably not reflecting on why he thinks everyone at Victoria Cricket is a prick. <laughs> um, so whether whether he gets into that, I don't know, but we'll, yeah. we'll find out. Whether it's, it's explosive is what he said on radio last week. We'll, we'll wait and see on that. Um, and Jeff, also in passing, we should note that uh, if you want some lockdown reading, um, you can jump on the nightwatchman.net. We've talked about Nightwatchman before as being the other products that is made out of of, of, out of uh, out of the Trinorth offices there at the Oval, um, the Nightwatchman.net. Jeff, you and I have both written essays for them. Every edition of the Nightwatchman at the moment is two quid off. So there's a single issue two quid offer by simply putting in the code WIS2. So code WIS2 at the Nightwatchman.net. Any edition of the Nightwatchman can be yours for two quid off. Not a bad offer. A lot of codes, a lot of links, a lot of URLs. So just hit rewind if you want to make sure you're on top of what you can get through Wisdom Cricket Monthly. But basically, they do cricket writing. It's good. You will enjoy it. Go and read it. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. This is the Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. And to a man, Jeff, I was thinking about before, he was a guest on, I reckon, the third ever edition of the Final Word back in the summer of 2015. I'm not even sure if the podcast was called the Final Word then, but but Will McPherson was there with you. I wasn't there. I was back in Australia for that week, if you, you might That's recall. Right. I, I knit back for the... Th- third test and you knit back for the fourth or something like that um but um i think he's probably been on the show between times i'd be surprised if he wasn't but i'm, I'm glad he's here today will mcpherson welcome back thanks for having me it's a long long history i'm pretty sure i have been at some stage but i couldn't tell you where or when <laughs> or what we talked about or anything like that i mean i no idea it it was um let me see it was definitely first season i think it was just called the abc ashes podcast at that stage maybe i'm just looking it up on my computer now uh here we where do we where do we have him mcpherson you were on with subash jayaraman uh season one episode two so real real early days stuff someone was asking about all the old podcasts on the uh on the patron page this week and and asking where to find them so i have put up a link there on the community tab of that page as as to where you can find all the old pods on the abc website if you want them so will you can go back and listen anytime you want i'll check out season one episode two (laughs) it's a good one (laughs) now the reason we got will on uh the reason we've we've asked will to come on i should say uh jeff of course is because uh, will these days is a news hound one of the best news breakers uh, in all the cricket world uh based out of london for the evening standard newspaper um has been uh, all over um all the big stories in english cricket over the last few years uh, 
in that capacity. Uh, and we'll, um, at the moment, uh, it's a tumultuous time for English cricket. I mean, the season would have started on Sunday. The, the county championship was scheduled to start on Easter Sunday this year. It was a glorious day outside. Unfortunately, there was no cricket able to be played. But it's a time of serious flux because the county system... It's not the most robust, let's put it that way. I mean, the, 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 the counties aren't as financially strong as they would like to be, which means that a crisis like this really affects their bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coronavirus came along at a strange time for English cricket, being as it, it's sort of, you know, we the, the rumblings were there in February and then it sort of threw the country into disarray in March, you'd probably say. Um, and that March is a time which cricket fans know is just before the start of the season. You just just there so English cricket had to be had a little bit more time than other English sports like football and rugby because they were in their season they had to make what I'm sure their decision makers would call dynamic decisions or or whatever where they were they were on the job they were in their season and they were having to uh, reshuffle things agile things agile very agile exactly whereas cricket administrators had slightly longer just to watch it play out a little bit but now we are into the period where officially the season would have started and the situation is different here to other places in the cricket world for a number of reasons not least because I think the UK is being worse affected than certainly Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and the like uh, by coronavirus but also because the northern summer hasn't started so cricket fans here are sort of in that limbo period. If you measure your life by sport, as so many of us do, you know, English fans are coming out of a cold winter and really, we would have been really excited by the weekend we've just had, the, the, the Easter weekend, which is which is when this season was due to start on Sunday and we'd be on day three now. It's, it's Tuesday, so we'd be on day three of uh, the county championship and I, I've no doubt because it's April, some games would have already ended by... Uh, by about lunchtime today but we haven't started because of of what's happened we're not realistically going to see any cricket for uh, probably say two months at at, at a really really optimistic um, if you looked at really optimistically so it's just a really strange time I've got to take the part of the Australian listener in this conversation, Will, because we know Adam's a, a sort of UK sympathiser. And um, when it comes to county cricket, I, honestly, if you put me on the spot, I'm not sure if I could name all 18 counties off the top of my head. Like there'd be one or two that I'd, you know, I, re- I recognise them when I see them, but it's hard to, re- it's confusing for an Australian looking at county cricket. There's, there's a lot of counties, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of history. It, it all into overlaps and interweaves and all the rest of it. County players, we're being told, are on furlough. The word furlough must, if, if you look at it on the Google Books ranking, it must just have a massive upshoot in 2020. <laughs> no one said furlough as many times in the last 100 years as they have in the last couple of months. But what does it mean? What's Where is where are the counties at in terms of having this massive playing workforce who, who can't play, who can't train, who can't get together? Um, and you've got counties who are always basically a couple of weeks from falling over financially is how it looks and they've got to deal with paying players presumably without having any money coming in yeah so you're right the 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 word furlough was something that no one knew about here i if you'd asked me if you'd put me on the spot i would have probably guessed it was some kind of farming term or something yeah Uh, plow and furlough yeah either either a piece of equipment or something they do to a field which obviously fallow Mm. but it's, it's similar the name for a pub or something yeah so 
what furloughing is, it's, it's this government scheme that uh, they bought in about probably getting on for a month ago where basically if, uh, if your job is not going to be in use during the coronavirus crisis, uh, you can be sort of put, uh, you can be kind of laid off for uh, two or three months and the government will pay 80% of your wages up to a certain amount. So uh, I think when the government announced this, no one really expected um, sports clubs or professional sports bodies would be the kind of people that would be using this. Uh, it was more sort of, uh, certainly my instinct was, you know, like restaurants which are shut or pubs which are shut and their staff are obviously at a complete loose end. Uh, anyway, because there's no sport, clubs across all UK sport have started using it. It was football clubs, not, not premiership, but even championship. Uh, one level below but rugby clubs and cricket was uh, pretty quickly got on the bandwagon I think most counties now um, have used the furlough scheme which basically means that you're not you're, they're actually not allowed to work for the period of their furlough which is probably about two months right. and, and that extends to uh, media commitments on behalf of the club it extends to you know it, it, I think they're having to look, look after their own fitness because of the love of the game, if you like, I'm saying that in, inter- in, in inverted commas, and because of their sort of professional pride, rather than on behalf of the county itself. Um, so obviously, while as you said, while the counties have got nothing coming in at the moment, you know, like a lot of counties, as you said, it is quite a confusing system if you don't understand it fully, but the counties... Uh, they can sort of be split into different groups. So there's the, the test match counties, which uh, host host international cricket. Uh, they they have huge, well, big big stadiums with facilities, which so they earn money by things like conferences happening there and the hotels on site and all those kind of stuff, which actually right. brings in significant revenue. Obviously, all those things are currently cancelled as well, so all that revenue is lost. Um, there are others which just rely on um, gate receipts for uh, memberships and gate receipts at games. So they're obviously not getting that money. So the furlough scheme actually has been a slightly surprising lifeline for these counties because it means that they can get a significant mum- number of their playing staff, but also their non-playing staff, um, off their books for the next two months while there's no work to do. Yeah, so they're formally off off until at least the 29th of May. I mean, the expectation is, as you say, well, it'll, it'll be a lot, probably a lot longer than that, but that accounts for the first seven rounds of the championship season. It is quirky, though, that these professional sports people who, you know, we'd expect that when they're out of season, they're, they're in the gym, uh, they're practising their skills, strength and conditioning, any number of bits that go on behind the scene, you know, kicking beneath the water um, uh, when, when, when we're out of season. Um, they can't really do that. I mean, granted, they would have been in isolation anyway, given the lockdown that is currently in place in the UK, but um, all the facilities not being at their disposal, the fact that they're not even allowed to do media commitments, I believe, having read something last week, um, if it's in the name of the club, like it is a a strange time to to be a cricketer. It is, yeah, it's a really odd time to be a cricketer, Um, especially, I mean, I think that one of the the biggest grey area is probably injured players who would get looked after by the staff of their club. Uh, I'm sure they can, I I think... I think that is. I think that is a grey area that has been addressed, and they're sort of allowed to get attention from the medical staff. But I, all of that would be in the same way that we're talking now via uh, Zoom or whatever. So um, it is. It is really. It's an interesting situation that. Um, but it's good. You know, this furlough scheme has probably been probably propping up a couple of counties at the moment. I would say um, keeping them afloat 
Um, because as Adam said at the very start of this segment, you know, the county game is not... There's a lot spoken about the county game. There's a lot of... Um, there's a sort of assumption... Uh, that it's, it's on its kind of it was on its last legs. It's this old institution. It's, it's it's in it's in a state of existential crisis. I think, to be honest, it's been in existential crisis for as long as it's existed. Um, and Johnny Lou wrote quite a nice piece in the Guardian uh, this morning, overnight Australia time, which is um, you know sort of mentions this kind of thing. But it was a, it was a, a Warwickshire club secretary or something who mm. said in 1967 that they weren't putting on a show that anyone wanted to watch basically and I, I think that that sort of sense of crisis has been there the whole time but this is actually a a, a literal threat to it uh, that's going on now I think the um, you know the the, the the assumption has been when people talk about oh, what, what's most at threat is those those counties that Jeff when you said that you know you can name them all at a push. You've probably been to most of them for an Australia tour match or an England women's game or whatever at some stage of World Cup game. Um, but the ones which you can sort of, you know, your Derbyshire's, your Northants, Leicestershire, that they're, they're the ones who are sort of famously uh, living on the breadline, I suppose you could say. But actually, I, I think they'll, they'll be all right in this crisis because um, they live on ECB handouts, which are still there. Um, the ECB have provided a big fund they've brought forward some payments they've said that things don't need to be you can use these, this money for whatever you like rather than upgrading your facilities or whatever which would have been expected um, so they live on those they're not so worried about the conference money which isn't there, all of the empty you know, meeting rooms, the empty hotel rooms, all those kind of things That it might be those slightly bigger counties which face a, a, a more direct threat because of this crisis but that's just a guess at this stage, I think. So then where does that ECB money come from? They've got this fund together. Is that a loan? Is that digging into their reserves? And, and how does that leave them positioned considering they've spent, what is it, over £100 million putting the 100 together, which may not be able to go ahead this year? And then they've had to find all this emergency reserve money for clubs as well. Yeah, I think so. I've, the ECB told us a couple of weeks ago that there's no sort of outside money that's come in if that makes sense. They haven't taken any loans. They've Their reserves have taken a bit of battering over the last few years because of 100, but um, I think it's I think it's money that's come from the broadcast deal uh, that they secured a couple of years ago, which was, was a sort of a triumph uh, of a broadcast deal. Um, the 100, they say, is already in profit even before a ball has been bowled, which feels remarkable, but that's what they say. Um, it feels pretty doubtful as well. You, you'd think so, given that particularly the marketing budget and all that kind of stuff. But um, so they they, it, it, they they say there's no outside money that's come in for this, um, and it, a lot of it, I think, is payments that have been sort of that, that they had scheduled for these counties over the next two years. They've been sort of brought forward, uh, and then they'll get other money to have those payments later down the line so the things that aren't going to go ahead are fairly clear as we said before a, a, a decent chunk of the championship season maybe no championship uh, uh, they might uh, end up playing some sort of regional red ball comp later on which which we've been hearing about as well Will we know the hundreds unlikely maybe the blast but where the fun stuff is if you want to sort of take the positive spin is that we might have 
uh, a compressed international season here where their obligation from a World Test Championship perspective is to somehow get these test matches in. So, I mean, we've heard Joss Butler last week talking about the potential of seeing the England white ball team playing at the same time as the test team. Now, none of this is ideal. On the same ground? You could argue in the Trevor Bayless era, sometimes that did occur. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, the, but the, I mean, of course, none of this is like advisable or desirable, but we'll, if we do get to the stage where, say, in July or August or even September, the, the lockdown is lifted and, and cricket can resume in, in some capacity, even if it's behind closed doors and all the rest of it, it could be a, you know, a, a fairly exhilarating uh, back half of the summer. Yeah, I think it'll be non-stop if we can get going. I think um, the in- international cricket in England, as you guys both know, sells really, really well. You know, it, the, the TV numbers are obviously what they are uh, because of the, the nature of it being all behind a paywall, but it sells, it re- really, really sells. So that, you know, that Australia ODI set or white ball tour in July, which all of us just look at and go, oh, why are they doing that again? We had that one two summers ago. The Aussies came here last summer for three months. Are, they, are the Australians ever not in England in the summer? Like, this is, this is boring. Well, that was completely sold out. So, like, there was a huge demand for those, I think it's six matches, three, three T20, three right. one days. Uh, and it, it would, so they, there's a sort of a, an element of obligation to get those games on somehow. Ireland were meant to come for some one days at the end of the summer. They were selling pretty well. Um, and then there's, there were test series against uh, West Indies and Pakistan. The, the likelihood is that rather than those games all being spread over June, July, August and September, we're looking at a situation where maybe the second half of July, if if things really, really fall into place, uh, we might be able to get going, but more likely August and September, where things are going on at the same time. I think there's an acceptance among the players that they would be happy for this to happen. I don't think, I don't think it literally means playing on the same day, uh, because the operations element of that would be such a stretch. I think they mean there'll be five days of a test match and then afterwards would be a one day, I think, realistically. It, it's like, Adam, remember that Greek Chapel season, I think it's the underarm season where they, they played a test match finishing on New Year's Eve and then had one day off uh, and went to Sydney and started one playing, started yeah. one on January the 2nd. You know, it, it can be done. It's not it's not ideal, but it's been done in the past. No, World Series Cup days, you're spot on in the early 80s and the, and the other summer, now it's going to stretch me here, but I think it was 78-9 where England... India and Australia were all playing at the same time. Uh, test matches all, all amongst each other in, in addition to the World Series games that were taking place and one day as, as they were sanctioned at the time. So, yeah, I mean, there'll be they'd be burnout if they played them every summer that way. But, like, I guess when you rationalise it that it might be an eight-week window where the season runs, even will into October. I mean, Richie Benno was always an advocate for playing cricket in England into October, arguing that it was far better suited that cricket was far better suited to october than it is to april april yeah the there's world. definitely so, an argument for that so i i ponder whether that that might come into consideration as well yeah i think it will australia did this i think 2017 i think at the start maybe the start of that i, I definitely it was definitely a time when two aussie teams were playing at the same time oh yeah yeah so that was the that was the you're spot on so T20s. The, T, the t20s were being played against sri lanka in australia while the test squad were in india exactly so uh, it's not unheard of. Also, I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of nerdy lads would love it because the formats are diverging again. I think they, you know, I think it was a feeling they came a bit closer a couple of years ago, but they are going off in their separate directions again. So you could get two England teams out without too much um, 
you know, too much worry. And it would probably do the test team a favour because they'd stop picking some of the one-day lads who it hasn't quite worked out. Um, <laughs> I, I actually wonder, like, if we're looking at cricket more broadly, um, or sport more broadly, post-coronavirus, whether we might see this being an example of, like, a slight lowering of professionalism, if that makes sense. We've been on the last 20, 30 years of sport have been this like acceleration to the absolute peak of professionalism. But maybe that will just calm down now in a sort of era where uh, there's a little bit more uh, sort of sitting back and thinking about what sports clubs are actually for. Is it is it hyper-professionalism or is it a, are they a community? Are are they representing people? Are we just trying to get things on to four people? I, I don't know. I don't know what the game looks like after this, but I do. I do wonder whether the, the sort of the, 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 that that ascent towards fresh professionalism might just calm slightly. I think, and and I suppose the English English cricket is as vulnerable as anything. Um, luck, one good thing about English cricket is it's very joined up. Um, and same with same with cricket in Australia. Actually, they're both run by the governing body, which operates everything. Whereas the Premier League and the FA in in football are separate. In rugby, there's separate bodies which run all the different competitions. Mm-hmm. So that that that's an interesting thing. I mean, how far each competition is delayed or anything, I don't know. Uh, once once we start, England have already had two World Test Championship tests in Sri Lanka called off. I don't know how, when they're going to happen this winter. England are going to be playing constantly, like genuinely constantly. They already had a ridiculous winter with the World T20 and three or four tours, so it's just going to get crazier. Well, the WTC, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that, Will, because um, that's coming up in, in, in Australian circles now. Nathan Lyon was asked about it overnight, and increasingly the view being taken around the place I think is that how is it possible to, to finish this competition the way it was agreed at the time I mean what will it be for England the two test matches they missed against Sri Lanka obviously the sixth this summer have they got what, another five over the winter or something they've like got, that well, they've got, a lot of test cricket they've got five in India after Christmas five in India, so, right, I mean yeah. that five tests in India for England is an absolute guaranteed way of ensuring you don't have to play in the World Test Championship final but um, <laughs> That they still got to they still got to complete their obligations, and obviously the nature of this winter or this Australian summer, where in 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 the, in the international game is that before Christmas it's all white ball, white ball, white ball. Get the, try and win the World T Twenty, uh, and then after Christmas or maybe from the start of December, I guess it's uh, it's Test cricket and build up to that final of the Test Championship. So. With that, I don't. I'm not sure that the World Test Championship and the final being in July or June or whenever it is, 2021, and the T20 World Cup in November 2020 can both happen. I, I don't. I think that. I think given the the fixture uh, stress already, I don't see how they both go ahead as as planned. Can we get a situation where just whoever happens to be around in England at the time could play for their white ball team? Like I was just watching the clips today of uh, Aravinda De Silva, Sanath Jayasuriya and Alan Border all playing for Malaysia in the Super 8s <laughs> yes, Challenge Super 8s, in the yeah, mid-90s. Yeah. Boy, captain. The, yeah, in the sort of pink-red Malaysian strip and, and um, <laughs> a, a, hit, a hit over the fence was worth eight runs and Border mm. smashed an unbeaten 50 you had to retire at 50 but you know Alan Border playing for Malaysia well my my heart raced um, could it be a situation like that where it's just well whoever's there chuck them in you're, yeah, well, you're the I England mean, T20 team there's various there's various coaches as well kicking around we could get 
Michael Divanuto could have the England career that he never got with mm. Australia. Um, yeah. yeah. Mark Cosgrave, of course, still at Leicestershire doing very, very well each year. Exactly. Dizzy's he, I think Mark Cosgrave's that. eligible to play. I worked this out last year. If, if my sums are correct, he's one of the very... You know how you hear a lot, a lot of players that, oh, well, they might play for England one day and it's completely ridiculous. Like Dwayne Oliveira is the, the classic example of that. I'm more likely to play for England than, than Oliveira is. But Mark Cosgrave actually can due to the, the length of time he's been here for and how long he's been a resident in Leicestershire and all the rest of it. But anyway, that's uh, he's available if selected, I'm, I'm sure. Well, with the WTC and, and, and the World T20 or the T20 World Cup, as I continue to botch each week, is the conversation in England circles moving towards the idea that the T20 World Cup actually might happen? Because a few weeks ago, you know, when, when Australia was trending in the same way that the UK and other parts of Europe were before the, the curve was suppressed, it felt like that was fanciful. But, it, I mean... They, they, there might be a way of playing it. In the same way we're talking in England that the internationals might be behind, behind closed doors with essential staff only and uh, there might be some sort of provision where that could happen in Australia as well for a global tournament. Yeah, I, I don't really know where that tournament's at because it, 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 from an English perspective it feels so far down the road if, if you like. There's so much that's mm. to come before then. I think it. I, I think it's very realistic that, given Aust- the nature of what's going on in Australia, is from my understanding, I think it's realistic that they could be in a position to hold that tournament. I suppose it's then about other competing nations. I think England could give a glimpse this summer about how uh, things can work behind closed doors. I mean, there was, I read a really good article on Sports Illustrated website this uh, weekend where it was sort of. They were they were very much playing down, uh, or, or saying how hard it is to stage things behind closed doors. Realistically, in America, the same is will be true in England. Even though America, the situation is even worse than it is here. But you know, even, even right down to the fact that to hold a sports event, you need a couple of ambulances on site. And right now, ambulances are quite important in other parts of society mm. you know that just things like that but the ECB are working pretty hard at, at trying to develop a way of having games you know sort of the, these sort of biosafe venues where games could happen where everyone you could have a sort of lock-in for a week everyone has a test when they come Paulie Shaw you need to get Paulie Shaw biodome yeah, on bio-dome, the case yeah. sort that out <laughs> Um, and uh, Steve Elworthy who sort of ran the World Cup last summer very successfully and has run mm. all those other ICC events he's now working for ECB um, and he's sort of involved in this as I mentioned before quite a lot of the test grounds have uh, hotels on site which could be quite helpful Old Trafford and the Aegeus Bowl spring to mind there which that, that, that could be quite handy for, for trying to get things on so maybe maybe they'd only be two or three venues actually used in England this summer but a lot of international cricket played at them with no crowds in the, gra- in, in the, in the stadium and, and, and maybe that could set a, a precedent for things to happen elsewhere in the world as well and how, how you set them up but um, it's still I think we're still at the speculation stage unfortunately they are working hard on those contingency plans and how 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 few people they can get in the ground it's probably I think initially people thought 500 uh, that might be able to drop a little bit. I mean, you know, even from our point of view, do you let how many written media do you let in? If if mm. any, do you just make us watch on TV? I mean, whatever's the right thing to do, that's fine. But um, you know, just how far can you trim that number down of people who actually need to be in? Obviously, there's twenty two competing players and two umpires, but 
beyond that, how many how many more people do you need? Well, what's certain is that it's a uh, it's a fascinating time, and, and thanks for being able to shed some light on that because there's a lot lot of moving parts between uh, the domestic game, the international game, even the um, how that relates to the ICC tournaments. And um, of course, we don't know a lot, but um, it's, it's valuable insight uh, getting a perspective from from someone that's got their finger right on the pulse. So, Will McPherson, thanks for being back on the final word. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's The Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Will McPherson for giving us the, the good oil on all things English cricket. And, Jeff, as promised earlier in the show, another edition of The Statman. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Statman. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Scatman John. It is time for the Scatman. Um, after we used that intro for the first time a few weeks ago, uh, someone got in touch with me on Twitter and let me know that there's an AFL podcast that also have a segment called the Statman that also use a different bit of that song recut <laughs> to do <laughs> to do their intro. I was like, okay, a perfect idea is always going to be had by more than one person. It's too good not to have done, but I was also uh, <laughs> slightly disappointed that someone else has got there first. You, you've, but, nearly, you know, you've nearly it, quoted it David Brent there, a good idea is a good idea forever. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I sort of uh, mashed, you know, flash dance with some MC Hammer shit. <laughs> um, right, and well, that's well, how I came up. So you've already framed up what you've, you've already framed up that this is going to relate to uh, to, to, to Robert Key, and I'm, I'm glad that he's yep. going to be the, the sort of the launching off point. This uh, this latest statement. I'm, I'm quite. Uh, you haven't told me anything about this. This should be fun. No, I haven't told you much except what you heard earlier. I know you're a big fan of that Rob Key hundred because every time the two twenty one comes up, you're like, and Robert Key. Don't forget <laughs> Robert Key. Um, and it's it's interested me for a while because you know you look at his stat page and it says. High score, 221 centuries, one, one test hundred. So I thought, how many other players have one test hundred, but it's a double? How many players? And and so I was going to, I thought I'll ask you first pop quiz style, Adam. Who else can you think of who only has a test century that's a double? I feel like there's a, I feel like there's someone that, that we, it's on the tip of my tongue one that we have either been there for or, or there's some significance to well Jason Gillespie would be one that yes. jumps out there you go there, yep. there's, there, there, there's the one that was on the tip of my tongue So there are two that we've interviewed on this show oh really he's one of them really so Jason Gillespie's been interviewed on the show uh, okay there you go I, I don't think Jeremy Coney made a test double hundred I know he's been on the no. show um, think, think about a live show rather than a recorded show oh Brad Hodge there Brad you go Hodge. Brad Hodge and Jason Gillespie very nice, very nice. So there are eleven all up. And okay. you've got you know you know three of them so far. Yep. Um, and they're not necessarily some of the most prominent numbers in the game, I suppose, as people who made one test hundred. But I've decided to work my way through them pretty quickly. I'm not going to take too much time over this. But there are some amazing names and some amazing stories among them. Once you look into it, so if you go in ascending score order, coming up first. Don Sada Brendan Priantha Karupu. Brendan Karupu, you might remember, played a yeah. lot of one-day cricket for Sri Lanka in the 80s, was was part of the style of that time. If you're someone who watched during that era, you'd know him very well, but only played four test matches. And his career gets weird immediately. He played four tests. Two of them were at Lords. So he, huh. he plays one in Colombo against New Zealand. He plays one in Perth against Australia. Then he plays single tests on two different tours of England about four years apart. So he's got this extraordinary 
extraordinarily piecemeal test career as it is, even though he played 50-odd one-dayers. And he's in Colombo batting against Richard Hadley when he makes this double hundred. He's on debut. This is his first test match. He makes 201, not out, one of only five double centuries on debut. But even better, he'd never made a first-class ton before. Then he makes this 201. He bats for 777 minutes, right, which is more than 12 hours, and makes the slowest double hundred in first-class history on his test debut. (laughs) That's also his only ever test hundred for 201. Glorious. There's a lot there, isn't there? <laughs> there is so much there. 777 minutes. Like, I I felt tired just reading about it. Yeah, yeah, and two of those tests being a lord. So they've obviously thought he's a big game specialist after having that sort of that, that long double time. They're like, well, we'll take him to England twice and only play him once a night yeah. on tour. How many players would have 50% of their career matches played at Lords? Even yeah. Andrew Strauss or someone wouldn't have that. <laughs> That's very good, Jeff. So he's first came off. He's the highest scorer, did you say? Oh, no, so, so I'm going in ascending order. Oh, so sorry, he's the no. lowest double hundred. Double hundred okay. e- equal with Jason Neil Gillespie, 201 yep. not out. Bradley John Hodge, 203 not out. Then you get to Martin Donnelly. Now, Martin Donnelly played for New Zealand, had his career interrupted by World War II. And he's this interesting sort of what might have been case in that, yeah, he lost six years to the war. He served in the war. And then he lived in England and mostly played first-class cricket for Warwickshire and he played for Oxford. He was a Wisden Cricketer of the Year for his work for Oxford um, in one of his seasons up there. But he only played seven test matches for New Zealand because they weren't really much of a test team at the time. They mostly got given three-day matches. They didn't come to England very often. But those seven matches included 206 at Lords in a drawn series in 1949. So he was a written about at the time as this wonderful player, a left-hander. Wisdom called him the best left-hander in the world, but he barely played for New Zealand. So there's this... He, he's kind of a, a heartbreak character, even though he, he lived a long and happy life after giving away cricket to concentrate on business. Good on him, yeah, that disparity there between sort of that, that gap sometimes between uh, potential and aesthetics and, and output, um, which... Uh, which you sometimes see with with stylists, I suppose. And for some reason, I think of it as like a left-hander thing as well. Like, you know, there's the, the, the gap mm. between maybe it's just the way we've been conditioned to think of left-handed batsmen. But there you go. Who's next? Who's next? Uh, Tazleem Arif, 210 not out. He made serious runs for Pakistan, including his double hundred in Australia in Faisalabad, replying to a Greg Chapel double hundred. But he was a wicketkeeper mainly and Wazimbari was around at that point. And so Taslim got six tests in 1980 and that was it, even though in one of those matches he made 210 not out uh, as a keeper. Pretty stiff. The, the, the classic case of the backup wicketkeeper, eh? the sort of Bob Taylor uh, syndrome. Very nice. I like it. Who's next? David Lloyd. 214 oh, of course, not. Of uh, we heard plenty about David Lloyd from Nasser Hussain uh, last week. So yep. the short version is he smashed a double hundred against India in 1974. Yep. In his second test, they weren't much chop, but that got him a spot on the Australian tour of 1975 where he got his dick smashed by Jeff Thompson. Didn't actually bat that badly. He made some 30s and 40s on that tour. It's not like he didn't make a run, but he never played again after that tour where Australia, uh, England got mauled by Lily and Thompson. It's, it is so harsh that England players, if they come here and don't do well, that they, they're jettisoned and, and that's it. I think of Michael Carberry as, as someone who probably had a similar tour to Lloyd in 74-75 across the board. And, you know, he was nowhere near at the point of needing to be binned off from an age perspective and, and uh, was collateral damage, I guess, along with Kevin Peterson from that tour. But, yes, uh, David Lloyd also falls into that category. The next is Dennis St. Eval Atkinson. 
who was a white West Indian player, one of the last white captains before Frank Worrell took the job and politically things changed around to be a bit more reflective of the part of the world from which that team came. He captained a couple of tests in the 1950s, did Dennis Atkinson, and all round it. This is, this is one of the the real niche ones because there's some wonderful stuff here. So he mostly bats between – he sometimes bats seven, but he bats as low as ten for the West Indies when he plays. He's an all-rounder. He bowls – sort of you can't really decide if they're off cutters or off breaks but he bowls probably a bit more than he bats but he's playing in this test match Australia makes 668 the Windies are 6 for 147 they're fucked Sobers is out Walcott's out Everton Weeks is out Frank Worrell's out so these wonderful players they've got in their side all gone for low scores Atkinson gets together with the wicketkeeper Cyril Claremont de Pisa and they put on 347 for the next wicket, taking the score to 510. Then they're batting together again in the second innings when they secure the draw. Uh, they've still got the record for the seventh wicket partnership for 347. I remember watching them when we were watching Vogers and Sean Marsh yeah, against yeah. the West Indies going to that huge partnership. I remember them going past Claremont de Pisa and Dennis Atkinson and thinking, who the hell were they, and looking them up at the time. So they've still got that record to this day, and he's he's probably... The only player on this list, he probably played the most tests of anyone aside from Gillespie on this list because he played 22 times, but that was his only 100, was the unlikely 219 that he made in that backs-to-the-wall effort against Australia. Lovely, lovely. It's good, mate. It's a disproportionate amount of these against Australia as well. It's very good. Yeah, actually, um, as, as they come up. Well, Rob Key was not against Australia. He was against the West Indies when he batted first at Lords and just pasted the shit out of them. Uh, 221 he made. Um, he also got robbed in that same series because he was 93 not out chasing a target of over 200 and Andy Flintoff came in, smashed a 50 and gobbled up too many runs and Rob Key couldn't get 100. Yeah, the, the, I always feel sorry for, for, for batters who are in that situation. The one that stands yeah. out, of course, being Alex Tudor, who in 1999, uh, when they were chasing down a fourth innings total, um, he was on 99 when, when Graham Thorpe, I think, hit the winning runs and missed out by a single. It's supposed what would have been his well, only Test 100, of course, because Tudor um, didn't end up having the sort of long Test career we thought he might at that stage mm. when he burst onto the scene and was bowling so quickly. But, yeah, I, I always like the idea of sort of somehow finding a way to, to farm the strike and get, get the players to, to three figures. And, um, and I'm sorry to hear that Rob Key missed out on that second time, but if he did, he wouldn't be on this list. He wouldn't be on the list and he wouldn't have been our link to the list and we wouldn't have had the list exactly. at all. So it was for the best, Rob. Don't feel bad. Three to go and you are going to love the next two of these. <laughs> I, I guarantee it, Adam. <laughs> all right. Coming in third from the top. Sheikh Faoud Almal Fazial Bacchus. Born in Guyana, played for the West Indies. Never heard of him, had you? I, I, I regret to say I have not. but I, I nor, hear- nor had I. <laughs> nor, had, nor had I until today. Bacchus Marsh. That's exactly what I was thinking. He was playing at the same era as Rod Marsh and his, uh, the last of his names was Bacchus. So if you'd put them together, you would have had Bacchus Marsh. Uh, he was mostly an opener and he was playing in the era of Greenwich and Haynes, so he didn't get a lot of opportunities. So, although, Well, he played 19 tests and a quirk of his career is that he never played a test at the same ground twice. So all of his 19 matches came at different grounds. He had a full tour of England, toured Pakistan, India and Australia, but he was in and out of the side a bit. He suits up in Kanpur, 
India have three different century makers in their side. They make 644 and then he comes out and makes 250 in reply until he falls over and knocks over his own stumps <laughs> and he's out hit wicket for an even 250. He never made another 100 and he averaged 26 despite his top score being 250. Later, 15 years after his last match for the West Indies, at the age of 43, he turns out and captains the United States of America in two ICC trophy tournaments. <laughs> and then some years after that, turns out for the Guiana Masters team on tours where they play the likes of Argentina. The, 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 um, An there extraordinary might be enough, career. I wonder whether there's a link, but which, which years did he, did he captain um, USA in the ICC trophy? Do you have that? 1999, I think. 99. So um, I was going to say, it would have been I, beautiful had it been in, in 2004, when, when, um, when when 2003 rather, when John Davison took 17 wickets against them, um, which came up last week on Nerd Pledge. No, I think he bit. was playing in 03 as well. Was he? I think he played so, 90, I think he captained in 99 and 03 oh, in two well, different tournaments. It could be a, a, a nice little link back to Nerd Pledge last week <laughs> uh, with, with Davo. Anyway. So, so that was 250, uh, his only test 100, 250. Next on the list, a man you know and love, Reginald Erskine, just oh, the tip. Just Foster. the tip. Is that his only 100? That's his only 100. was 287 on debut for England at the SCG. I, I, I looked at this last night. <laughs> this is why I was so popular in high school. I was looking at this last <laughs> night um, in the context of, of uh, Billy Murdoch. I'm reading a book about Billy Murdoch at the moment. Uh, the only biography about him, remarkably, but he, mm. um, he held the, the highest score in Test cricket for a time with his 211, of course, the first... Uh, the first player to make a double hundred in Test cricket. So I was scanning a list and thinking about who mm. who held the, the the World Championship belt at different times. And of course, no, no more, not, not one we've enjoyed more than the tip over the years. Just the tip. Yeah, exactly. Um, he held it for from 1903 until 1930, when Andy Sandham made the first triple hundred. I, I had Jet this. Foster had the highest score until then. I feel obliged to mention at this point, now that you've said Andy Sandham, that last week, and this was. Um, this came up in a really nerdy WhatsApp group that I'm in uh, with, um, uh, indeed, with Will McPherson and, and Jonathan Liu, who we mentioned before, and, and, and a couple of others who we occasionally send um, it, it bits of cricket trivia around. And uh, mine was, and I think, Jeff, you'll know this because I think we've talked about this before, but the great Wilfred Rhodes debuted in 1899. His, mm. his first test match um, was the last for WG Grace. So pretty nice little link there because Rhodes goes on, of course, to yep. play Test cricket across a 31-year span. Finishing Until he in, was 54. Yeah, finishing in 1930. So, so Sandham's first Test match is with WG Grace and his last Test match at Sabina Park, the first ever Test match played at Sabina Park, I should add, was when the first Triple 100 was made in Test cricket via mm. Andy Sandham. So the, the sad bit there is that Wilfred Rhodes, who um, yeah, indeed played, that was his final Test match. He didn't play in 28-29 against Australia, so he was denied the chance to bowl against Don Bradman. And he didn't push on until later in 1930 when, of course, Bradman came to England for the first time. Because if he did play, he would have been the only man to have linked WG Grace to, to, to mm. the Don, but, but not quite. They missed out. They were ships in the night. But, yeah, I quite like right. that. And also I should add that the 1899 Test match, which was WG Grace's last, was was Trumper's debut as well at Nottingham at Trump huh. Bridge. So, yeah, quite a bit huh. going on in, in that little progression. 
There you go. Well, uh, Tip Foster, it was written in his obituary. C.B. Fry said of him that no one except Ranjit Singhji could wield a bat with greater quickness. Tall, slim and lithe, he brought off catches that would have been impossible to ordinary men. Uh, he was one of seven Foster brothers to play for Worcester, by the way, which is <laughs> hysterical. Literally birthing a cricket team, captain England at football and cricket, and died at 36 from diabetes. So um, he's another of these remarkable characters and, and the reason that his 287 is his only test 100 is because he drifted away from the, the game in order to work so he toured Australia that one time, he didn't tour the next time because he couldn't arrange enough time away from his work and uh, and he wasn't playing much first class cricket by the time Australia got back to England so um, he only played that one tour of Australia and then three tests against South Africa when probably no one else wanted to in England so eight tests in total and uh, and that 287 that was the highest score for nearly 30 years. And not, not the first time we've mentioned someone on the final word who captained England in two sports of course at our live show last year Jeff in London at the Hampstead Cricket Club we talked about the great A.E. Stoddard who who was an Ashes winning captain uh, as a cricketer and captained the England rugby team as well so yeah it was certainly of, of, of its time wasn't it where you could do two things to the, the very top and would have been fascinating to think that if that were possible now which which I guess uh, from a purely Australian context which footballers would have ended up playing test mm. cricket you know you always hear about Luke Hodge and Luke Ball um, i Bold to Luke Ball was a junior, actually. He was a very good player. But um, others of that generation who were excellent cricketers but made the choice to go to football, whether they would have made it as test players, yeah. who knows. Well, Martin Donnelly, who we mentioned earlier, also played rugby for England at one point. I think he, he played in a game that they lost to Ireland famously. So yeah, right. that didn't go so well. So there's one more player on our list. Uh, can you ponder, can you think of who <laughs> has made a score higher than 287 that's, that is his only test century? Christ, this is tough isn't it? Um, right um, uh, well, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing numbers like 291 and Richards and I'm sort of thinking 299 with Crow but I can't see any other 29 somethings but, but it, That's because it's not a 2 It's, it's, it's a 3 Only 100 mm-hmm. Kuranaya that's it. Oh, a, that's it. You know, he's three hundred and three not out. He's only played uh, six Test matches. Basically, got that triple hundred against England. Then played three relatively low-scoring tests against Australia, and then yep. he's never been picked again. The poor bugger. So um, it, it's tough if you're in the Indian middle order because they chop and change a lot in the current era. I'm very happy with that. I don't know why that just came straight to mind. I'm like, you know, the list of triple hundreds I'm reasonably familiar with, um, yeah. uh, but uh, not, not, not familiar enough to go through all of them. But I'm glad that, to snaffle that one. Very good. <laughs> if I do say so um, myself. <laughs> So that is the list of men's test players whose only century was a double. There are quite a few in the women's game because basically they get to play so few test matches that if you happen to make a double, you're not likely to get too many more opportunities. So Joanne Broadbent, Michelle Gosko, Kirsty Flavel, Matali Raj and Kieran Bullock all have standalone double tons in the women's test game. Yeah, in, in itself that's remarkable, but yeah, not so remarkable given how infrequently women play test matches. I mean, at least Perry would have been on that list um, had she not mm. saluted at, at Taunton last year. But yeah, great, great, great work there, Jeff. Uh, another very successful edition of the Stats Man. I say, or well, the stat man, even that has, that has been the stat man. Before we round off this episode and say our goodbyes, Jeff, uh, just a 
bit of correspondence. We like to drop a couple of notes in each week. I got an email in from Luke Mason the other day who says uh, nice things uh, about the final word and the greatest season that was the other show on the Bear Producer Network and how important they've been for him through the shutdown period. He adds here that he was uh, laid low with glandular fever for the best part of the last six months and uh, last year during the final word daily, so from the World Cup and the Ashes, it was the first thing he would do each morning was tune in and it became part of his important routine. Um, quote, it was something to look forward to at a time when things were fairly slow and I wasn't able to physically do too much. So a belated and sincere thank you. Well, a thank you to you, Luke Mason. It's it's, it's lovely uh, receiving notes from that. It was really nice, Jeff, uh, when you posted that that World Cup, uh, sorry, Ashes Daily bit we, we referred to at the start of the episode and going back and listening to that, it feels like a really long time ago, but it was a yeah wonderful time in our lives and, and hopefully there'll, there'll be another opportunity to, to roll out those daily episodes um, at the T20 World Cup if it would happen next year or indeed the year after if it comes to that. Yeah, and, and the Women's 50 Over World Cup will be 2021, Indeed. hopefully, in New Zealand. So um, would look to be able to do it then as well. So, it, look, one of my favourite things is lying around in bed. So if I can help other people pass the time lying around in bed uh, better, more profitably, and, and make them feel better doing it, then I'm very pleased. <laughs> right, Jeff, time to say goodbye. Initially, uh, some thank yous to, to, to Jay Mueller and his whole team at Bad Producer Productions, uh, DC for clipping the show together each week, Astrid Edwards for the help she provides us as well. It, it's very much appreciated. To our, our friends on Patreon, uh, who we've been talking to a lot on the DM uh, in recent times, if you want to get part of that and want to be a, a nerd pleasure, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the final word um, to Bus Super, to Wisdom Cricket Monthly for their partnering with us uh, throughout 2020. Who am I missing, Jeff? Uh, just a, Will yeah. McPherson was Will on McPherson. the show today. Will McPherson, can't forget Will. Your baby Winnie who is screaming in the background. I can <laughs> hear her coming down the line. Um, yeah. Very keen for you to finish this show and go and pay her some attention. Yeah, I'll go and give her a a cuddle in a second Dean I might give her a cuddle right now uh, as I say thank you to everyone for listening in to the final word another long edition of the show as they'll probably continue to be throughout the shutdown period be sure to also check out Calling the Shots which will be on the stream on Friday thank you Jeff thank you Linesman thank you Ball Boys we'll talk again next week hasta mañana I had to go about it write it out and find it myself and there's some stories I can